Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast. For this week, we read more chapters of this aquatic adventure. I talk about a couple of cool video game things. Take a look at what's on one of my favorite streaming services, and I have finally moved. That's right, this week is the first episode of the Going Up Cast to be recorded from my brand new apartment. And we talk about how that whole process went down and what the new place looks like and all that stuff here in a little bit. I talk about Dreams on the PlayStation uh, and how fucking incredible that is. We talk about the new Muppet Show on Disney Plus and what they're doing with the Mulan release. We talk about PAX and uh, what they're doing there. And we get some more chapters with uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. If you like the Going Cast and want to support the Going Cast, there's one really good way you can do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash going upcast, where you can become a $5 patron. We'll get access to such awesome things like the Pokemon Nuzlocke run, uh, the ability to watch our monthly live streams, and hopefully here pretty soon I'm going to make a um, fucking, god damn it, what is this? apartment tour video. There you go. Um, I'm just waiting for some items to show up to f- finish decorating my apartment, and then I'll and then I'll make the video. But you can see all of those things over at Patreon. And uh, in the meantime, God, I hope you guys are all doing well. It's been it's been a fucking chaotic week here. Um, I I took most of this week off to like unpack and get settled. And um, at the time of recording this, this is my last day of that like mini staycation. Does not feel like a staycation. Um, I feel like I need a proper vacation now. But I think the routine of getting back into work will um will help kind of solidify uh, the changes in, in my world that have been made. That's enough blathering uh, on my end. Hope you're all doing well. Let's move on to the first thing in the podcast. There's a PlayStation game called Dreams, which I've heard about on and off over the last, you know, couple of weeks and months and years and all that stuff. And um, what really finally got me to pay attention to it was there was an article somebody sent me that said somebody was recreating Disneyland rides in Dreams. And, like, virtual ones that you could ride. And I was like, ooh, interesting. Okay, well, let's take a look at this. So I, I bought Dreams. And Dreams runs you through, like, a 5 to 10 minute kind of tutorial almost uh, that I found really kind of cathartic. Um, one of the, one of the side effects of moving to a new apartment is a, not only getting used to like the new space and stuff like that, but it's getting used to, um, kind of isolation. Um, I had, I had roommates in my old place and now I'm on my own. And while this apartment is exactly what I want it to be in terms of decoration and where furniture is placed and what's in the fridge and all that stuff and everything's dedicated and makes sense. Um, It's reminding me a lot of when I first went to college and I threw myself into making YouTube videos because I needed a distraction. And the Dreams intro was cathartic because it had moments of like, uh, we're all tied to this, this kind of uh, universal creative energy and it's represented through these little like imp guys that act as your cursor and there's a point where it's like you hit a wall and it's like this is a wall of doubt and you pull it down brick by brick and it's just like you just gotta keep pushing through and you gotta keep going and I'm like that's really good that's a really good message and the game itself is really fun and super easy it's this enormous library of uh, content that people have created um, I, I watched like the first 10 minutes of a Star Wars movie that somebody had redone in dreams like audio was on point and all the music and sound effects was there and it was really funny to watch and I rode those Disney rides there were three that I could find um, Space Mountain, Tower of Terror and the Indiana Jones ride and out of all of those the Space Mountain one was my favorite reason being is because the queue setup was so spot on and all the audio cues were just perfectly synced up, and like the actual start of the roller coaster was just phenomenal. The ride itself kind of loses a bit uh, in virtual reality, but again, then again, there's not much to see on the ride in person either. So it it, it makes for a weird virtual reality ride because that one's all about the the motion of the coaster, and you don't get that in virtual reality. It's just kind of stars like zipping by your face, um, which is totally fine. I, I still very much enjoyed it, and Dreams is, is really cool. I can't wait to explore more of that. It's this awesome, like, 
like content library thing and it take you don't even have to like download things it's like all streamed and stuff you just hit play and it just launches you straight into it and like people have recreated pt in this system like it's it's insane um and i'm i'm very much looking forward to exploring that in greater detail uh looking looking towards the future and i really hope they make more disney rides because fuck me i need that i need that in my life i'm not going to disneyland anytime soon unfortunately because of you know the world exploding but i need those virtual disney rides Disney needs to sponsor this. Anyway, let's move on to the next podcast. Oh, God. My neck is so fucking sore for some reason. It was like I, I just worked out my neck or something. It was really bizarre. Alrighty here. Let me see, which fucking chapter are we on with this stuff, huh? It's been a goddamn minute. Let me pull up, let me pull it up, hold on, 20,000 leagues. Looks like chapter 21 is the one we're on. Uh, some days ashore, interesting. All right, chapter 21, some days ashore. Stepping ashore had an exhilarating effect on me. Nedmond tested the soil with his foot as if he were laying claim to it. Yet it had been only two months since we had become, as Captain Nemo expressed it, passengers on the Nautilus, in other words, literal prisoners of its commander. In a few minutes, we were a gunshot away from the coast. The soil was almost entirely madriporic, but certain dry stream beds were strewn with granite rubble, proving that this island was of primordial origin. And the entire horizon had, was hidden behind a curtain of wonderful forest. Enormous trees, sometimes as high as 200 feet, were linked to each other by gnarls of tropical creepers, genuine natural hammocks that swayed in a mild breeze. There were mimosas, banyan trees, beefwood, teakwood, hibiscus, screw pines, palm trees, all mingling in a wild profusion and beneath the shade of their green canopies. At their feet of their gigantic trucks, there grew orchids, leguminous plants, and ferns. Meanwhile, ignoring all these fine specimens of Papuan flora, the Canadian passed up the decorative and flavor of the functional. He spotted a coconut palm, beat down some of its fruit, broke them open, and we drank their milk and ate their meat with a pleasure that was a protest against our standard fare of the Nautilus. Excellent, Nedland said. Exquisite, Council replied. And I don't think, the Canadian said, that your Nemo would object to us stashing a cargo of coconuts aboard his vessel. I imagine not, replied, but he won't want to sample them. Too bad for him, Council said. And plenty good for us, Nedland shot back. There'll be more left over. Would have cautioned, Mr. Land. I told the harpooner, who was about to ravage another coconut palm. Coconuts are an admirable things, but before we stuff the skiff with them, it would be wise to find out whether this island offers other substances just as useful. Some fresh vegetables would be well received in the Nautilus's pantry. Master is right, Council replied. Now propose we set aside three places for our longboat. One for fruit, another for vegetables, and a third for venison, of which I still haven't glimpsed the tiniest specimen. Don't give up so easily, Council, the Canadian replied. So let us continue our excursion, I went on, to keep a sharp lookout. This island seems uninhabited, but it still might harbor certain individuals who aren't so finicky about the sort of game they eat. <laughs> Ned put in with a meaningful movement of his jaw. Oh, Ned, the horrors! Uh, Council exclaimed. You gods! The Canadian shot back. Starting to appreciate the charms of cannibalisms. Ned, Ned, don't say that! Council answered. You were cannibal? Why, I'll no longer find a safe... I'll no longer be safe next to you. I, who share your cabin. Does this mean I'll wake up half-devoured one day? I'm awfully fond of you, Council, my friend, but not enough to eat you when there's better food around. Then I daren't delay, Council replied. The hunt is on. We must absolutely bag some game to placate this man-eater, or one of these mornings Master won't find enough pieces of his man-servant to serve him. While exchanging in this chit-chat, we entered beyond, beneath the dark canopies of the forest, and for two hours we explored it in every direction. We couldn't have been luckier in our search for edible vegetation and some of the more, most useful produce and the tropical zones uh, supplied us with valuable foodstuffs missing on board. I mean, the breadfruit tree, which is quite abundant in Gueboro Island, and there I chiefly noted the seedless variety that in Malaysia is called Rima. This tree is distinguished from other trees by the straight trunk 40 feet high. To the naturalist's eye, its graceful rounded crown formed a big multi-lobed leaves was enough to denote the artocarpus, artocarpus, that had been so successfully transplanted to the Mascarene Islands east of Madagascar. From its massive greenery, huge globular fruit stood out a decimeter wide and furnished on the outside with creases that assumed a hexagular pattern. A decimeter? Is that 10 centimeters? Or is that a decimeter? Decimeter. 
is equal to one tenth of a meter. Yeah, okay. That's about it's about the length of a pencil. I don't know. That's what I prefer. Just to just say it's like a foot or whatever. It's just metric imperial system. Who cares? Uh, where was I? Uh, it, it's a handy plant that nature gives to regions liking in wheat. Without needing to be cultivated, it bears fruit eight months out of the year. Ah, oh, that's pretty good. Nedland was on familiar terms with this fruit. He had already eaten, uh, eaten it on many of his voyages and knew how to cook its edible substance. So the very sight of it aroused his appetite and he could not control himself. Sir, he told me, I'll die if I don't sample a little breadfruit pasta. Sample some, men, my friend. Sample all you like. We're here to conduct experiments. Let's conduct them. It won't take a minute, Canadian replied. Equipped with a magnifying glass, he lit a fire of dead wood that was soon crackling merrily. Meanwhile, Council and I selected the finest Articarpus fruit. Some still weren't ripe enough. Their thick skins covered in white, slightly fibrous pulps. But a great many others were yellowish and gelatinous, just begging to be picked. This fruit contained no pits. Council brought a dozen of them to Nedland, who cut them into thick slices and placed them over a fire of live coals, all while repeating, You'll see how tasty this bread is. Especially since we've gone without baked goods for so long, Council said. It's more than just bread, the Canadian added. It's a dainty pastry. You've never eaten anything, sir. Have you never eaten any, sir? No, Ned. All right, get ready for something downright delectable. If you don't come back for seconds, I'm no longer the king of harpooners. Then after a few minutes, the parts of the fruit exposed to the fire were completely toasted. On the inside, there appeared to be some white pasta, a soft, sort of soft bread center, whose flavor reminded me of artichoke. This bread was excellent, I must admit, and I ate it with great pleasure. Unfortunately, I said, this pasta won't stay fresh, so it seems pointless to make a supply for it on board. By thunder, sir, Nedland exclaimed. There you go, talking like a naturalist. In the meantime, I'll be acting like a baker. Council, harvest some of this fruit to take with us when we go back. How will you prepare it? Asked the Canadian. I'll make a fermented batter from its pup that will keep indefinitely without spoiling. But when I want some, I'll just cook it in the galley on board. If I was, It'll have a slight tart flavor, but you'll find it excellent. So, Mr. Ned, I'd say that this bread is all we need. Not quite, Professor, Canadian replied. We need some fruit to go with it, or at least some vegetables. Then look, let's look for fruit and vegetables. When our bread harvesting was done, we took to the trail to this, uh, quote, dryland dinner. We didn't search in vain. In nearly noontime, we had an ample supply of bananas. It was a delicious produce from the torrid zones, ripens all year round. Malaysians, who give their name Pisang, eat them without bothering to cook them. Well, of course, you don't have to cook a banana to eat a banana. It's a fucking banana. In addition to bananas, we gathered some enormous jackfruit with a very tangy flavor, some tasty mangoes, some pineapples of unbelievable size. This foraging took up a good deal of our time, which even so, we had no cause to regret. Council kept Ned under observation. The harpooner walked in the lead. During his stroll through the forest, he gathered with some sure hands some excellent fruit that should have completed his provisions. So, Council asked, you have everything you need, Ned, my friend. <laughs> Canadian put in. What? You're complaining? All this vegetation doesn't make a meal, Ned replied. Just side dishes, desserts. But where's the soup course? Where's the roast? Right, I said. Ned promised us cutlass, which seems highly questionable to me. Sir, Canadian replied. Our hunting isn't only... Isn't... Hunting, our hunting, not only isn't over, it hasn't even started. Patience. We'll be sure to end up bumping into some animal with either feather or fur, and uh, if not in this locality, then in another. And if not today, then tomorrow, because we mustn't wander too far off, Council added. That's why I promise we return to the, propose we return to the skiff. What? Already? Ned exclaimed. We ought to be back before, we ought to be back before nightfall. I said, but what hour is it then? The Canadian uh, asked. Two o'clock, at least, Council replied. How time flies on solid ground, exclaimed Mr. Uh, Nedland with a sigh of regret. Off we go, Council replied. So we returned through the forest and we completed our harvest by making a clean sweep of some palm cabbages. Then we picked around, uh, picked from the crown of their trees, some small beans that I recognized as a brew of the Malaysians and some high quality yams. We were overloaded. When we arrived at the skiff, however, uh, Nedland still found these provisions inadequate. But fortune smiled on him. Just as we were boarding, he spotted several trees 25 to 30 feet high belonging to the palm species. As valuable as the um, Atrocarpus, um, these trees are justly ranked among the most useful produce in Malaysia. They were sago palms, vegetation that grow without being cultivated like mulberry trees. They reproduce by means of shoots and seeds. Ah, delicious. And hydrating. Nedlin knew how to handle these trees. Taking his axe and wielding it with great vigor, he soon stretched out on the ground two or three sago palms whose maturity was revealed by the white dust sprinkled over their palm fronds. I watched him. More as a naturalist than as a man in hunger, he began removing from each trunk a inch-thick strip of bark that covered a network of long, hopelessly tangled fibers that were puttied 
with a sort of gummy flower. This flower was uh, like uh, was the starch-like sago, an edible substance chiefly consumed by the Malaysian peoples. For the time being, Nedland was content to chop these trunks into pieces as if he were making firewood. Later, he would extract the flower by sifting it through cloth separated from its fibrous ligaments, let it dry out in the sun, and leave it to harden inside molds. Finally, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, laden with all of our treasures, we left the island beach and half an hour later pulled alongside the Nautilus. Nobody appeared um, on our arrival. The normal sheet iron cylinder seemed deserted. Our provisions loaded on board. I went below to my stateroom. There I found my supper ready. I ate and then fell asleep. The next day, January 6th, nothing was new on board. Not a sound inside, not a sign of life. The skiff stayed alongside in the same place we had left it. Decided to return to Guerboro Island. Nedland hoped for better luck in hunting than the day before, and he wanted to visit a different part of the forest. By sunrise, we were off, carried by an inbound current. The longboat reached an island in a matter of moments. We disembarked, and thinking it was best to abide by the Canadians' instincts, we followed Nedland, whose long legs threatened to outpace us. Nedland went westward up the coast, and then forbidding some streams or fording some stream beds. He reached open the plains that were bordered by the wonderful forests. Some kingfishers lurked along the watercrest, but they didn't let us approach. Their cautious behavior proved to me that these winged creatures knew where they stood on bipeds of our species. I concluded that this island wasn't inhabited. At least human beings paid it frequent visits. After crossing a pretty lush prairie, we arrived on the outskirts of a small wood enlivened by the singing and soarings of a large number of birds. Still, they're merely birds, Council said. But some are edible. The harpoon... They're all edible, technically. Um... Oh, and hold on. The harpooner replied, Wrong, Ned, my friend, Council answered, because I only see ordinary parrots here. Council, my friend, Ned said in all seriousness, parrots are like the pheasants to people with nothing else on their plates. And I might add, I said, that when these birds are properly cooked, they're at least worth a stab of the fork. Don't eat a fucking parrot, you horrible monsters. Indeed, under the dense foliage of woods, a whole host of parrots fluttered from branch to branch, needing only the proper upbringing to speak human dialects. At present, they were cackling in chorus with parakeets of every color and solemn cockatoos that seemed to be pondering some philosophical problems, while bright red lorries passed by like pieces of burnt born on the breeze. In the midst of uh, kalau um, parrots raucously on the wing, papoon lorries painted the subtle shades of azure and a whole variety of delightful winged creatures, none terribly edible. I like how he's like, you can easily stab a parrot with a fork and then even goes on to say how intelligent parrots are. Like, what the fuck? You're a professor. You don't have, like, this respect of natural life, you monster donkey shit. Don't eat a parrot, you absolute asshole. However, one bird unique to these shores, which never passes beyond the boundaries of the Aru and Papuan Islands, was missing from this collection, but I was given a chance to marvel it soon enough. After crossing through a moderately dense thicket, we again found some plains obstructed by bushes. There I saw some magnificent birds soaring aloft, the arrangement of their long feathers causing them to head in the wind. Their undulating flight, the grace of their aerial curves, and the play of their colors allured and delighted the eye. I had no trouble identifying them. Birds of paradise, I exclaimed. Order Passiforma, Division Class to Morrison. Council replied. Partridge family? Nedland asked. Um, I doubt it, Mr. Lad. Nevertheless, I'm counting on your dexterity to catch me one of these delightful representatives of tropical nature. I'll give it a try, Professor, though I'm handier with a harpoon than a rifle. Malaysians, who do a booming business in these birds with the Chinese, had various methods for catching them that we couldn't use. Sometimes they set snares on tops of tall trees that the birds of paradise prefer to inhabit, and other times they are captured with a tenacious glue that paralyzes its movements. But uh, they will even go so far as to poison the springs where the fowls habitually drink. But in our case, all we could do was fire at them on the wing, which left us a little chance of getting one. And in truth, we used up a good part of my ammunition in vain. Oh good, I'm glad you didn't catch one, you monsters. Near 11 o'clock, leave them alone. Leave the natural world alone. It's already dying. Near 11 o'clock in the morning, we lower, cleared the lower slopes of the mountain that formed the island center, and we still hadn't bagged a thing. Hunger spurred us on. The hunters had counted on consuming the proceeds of their hunting, and they had miscalculated. Luckily, much to his surprise, Council pulled off a right and left shot and ensured our breakfast. He brought down a white pigeon and a ring dove, which were bristly plucked, hung from a spit, and roasted over a blazing fire of deadwood. While these fascinating animals were cooking, Nedland prepared some bread from the artocarpus. Then the pigeon and ring dove were devoured to the bones and declared excellent. Nutmeg, on which these birds habitually gorged themselves, sweetened their flesh and made uh, delicious eating. That's amazing. They taste like chicken stuffed with truffles, the council said. How about pigeon stuffed with nutmeg? Dumbass. All right, Ned, asked the Canadian. Now what do you need? Game with four paws, Professor Onyx. Uh, Nedland replied. All these pigeons are only appetizers, snacks. So till I've bagged an animal with cutlets, I won't be happy. Nor I, Ned, until I've caught a bird of paradise. Then let's keep hunting, Council replied. But while heading back to the sea, we've arrived at the foothills of these mountains, and I think we'd uh, do better if we returned to the forest regions. 
It was good advice and we took it. An hour's walk, we reached a genuine sago palm forest. A few harmless snakes fled underfoot. Birds of paradise stole off at our approach. Now I was in real despair of catching one when Council walking leads uh, stooped, suddenly gave a triumphant shout and came back to me carrying a magnificent bird of paradise. Oh, bravo, Council! I exclaimed. Master is too kind, Council replied. Not at all, my boy. That was a stroke of genius catching one of these live birds with your bare hands. Master will examine it closely. He'll see that I deserve no great praise. Um, why not, Council? Because this bird is um, as drunk as a lord. Drunk? Yes, Master. Drunk from the nutmegs it was devouring under the nutmeg tree where I caught it. See, my friend? See the monstrous results of in intemperance? Damnation, the Canadian shot back. Considering the amount of gin I've had these past two months, you've got nothing to complain about. Meanwhile, I was examining this unusual bird. Council was not my station. Tipsy from the potent juice, our bird of paradise had been reduced to helplessness. It was unable to fly. It was barely able to walk, but this didn't alarm me. I, I just let it sleep off its nutmeg. This bird belonged to the finest of the eight species credited Papua and its neighboring islands. It was a great emerald, one of the rarest birds of paradise. It measured three decimeters long. Its head was comparatively small, and its eyes placed near the opening of its beak were also small. But it offered a wonderful mixture of hues. A yellow beak, brown feet and claws, hazel wings with purple tips, pale yellow head and scruff of neck, emerald throat, belly, a chest maroon to brown, two strands made up of a horn substance covered with down, rose over its tail, which was lengthened by long, very light feathers of wonderful fineness. And they completed the costume of this marvelous bird the islanders have poetically named the Sunbird. How I wished I could take this superb bird of paradise back to Paris to make it a gift of the zoo to the Botanical Gardens, which doesn't own a single live specimen. So it must be a rarity or something, Canadian asked, in a tone of a hunter who, from the viewpoint of his art, gave the game a pretty low rating. A great rarity, my gallant comrade, and above all, um, very hard to capture alive. And even after they're dead, there's still a major market for these birds. So the natives have figured out how to create fake ones, like people create fake pearls or diamonds. What? Council explained. They make counterfeit birds of paradise. Yes, Council. And is Master familiar with how the islanders go about it? Perfectly familiar. During the easterly monsoon seasons, birds of paradise lose their magnificent feathers around the tails and the naturalists call below-the-wing feathers. These feathers are gathered by foul forages and skillfully fitted onto some um, poor, previously mutilated paradigm. Then they paint over the such uh, sutures, varnish the bird, ship the fruits of their unique labors to museums and collectors of yard. Good enough, Nevin put in. If it isn't the right bird, it's still the right feathers, and so long as merchant isn't uh, meant to be eaten, I see no great harm. But if my desires were fulfilled by the capture of this bird of paradise, those of our Canadian huntsmen remained unsatisfied. Luckily, near two o'clock, Netherlands brought down a magnificent wild pig of the same type the natives call Berry Outang. Berry Outang. Let's take a look. Let's take a look at that pig. Pig, 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 Perry out. Tang. Very out tang. Um, images. Interesting. I'm not getting an image of a pig. I'm getting snippets of 20,000 leagues and then terrifying images beyond. I'm guessing it's just like a, like a weird looking forest pig. It's like drawings of Darwin on a body of a monkey. What the fuck? What a weird thing to Google. Okay. This animal uh, came in the nick of time for us uh, to bag some real quadruped meat and was warmly welcomed. Nedland proved himself quite glorious with his gunshot. Hit by an electric bullet, the pig dropped dead on the spot. Canadian properly skinned and cleaned it after removing half a dozen cutlets destined to serve as grilled meat coursing of our evening meal. Then the hunt was on again, and once more would be marked by the exploits at Nedland Council. In essence, beating the bushes, the two friends flushed a herd of kangaroos that fled by bounding away in their elastic paws. These animals didn't flee so swiftly that our electric capsules couldn't catch up with them. Oh, Professor, shouted Nedland, whose hunting fervor had gone to his brain. What excellent game, especially in a stew. What a supply for the Nautilus. Two, three, five down. Just to think I will devour all this meat ourselves while those numbskulls on board won't get a shred. And in his uncomfortable glee, I think the Canadian might have slaughtered the whole horde if he hadn't been so busy talking. But he was content with a dozen of these fascinating marsupials, which make up the first order of the aplacetinal... A placentinal, sentinel, a placentinal, whatever. The kangaroo and mammals. Just the council had to tell us. These animals were small in stature. They were the species of those rabbit kangaroos that usually dwell in the hollows of trees and are tremendously fast. But although moderate dimensions, they were at least furnished with a meat that is highly prized. You fucking horrible monsters. We were thoroughly satisfied with the results of our hunting. A gleeful Ned proposed that we return the next day to the Magic Island, which he planned to depopulate of every edible quadruped. 
but he was reckoning without events. By 6 o'clock in the evening, we were back on the beach. The skiff was aground in its usual place. The Nautilus, looking like a long reef, emerged from the waves two miles offshore. Without further ado, Nedlin got down to important business at dinner. Ugh. He came wonderfully to terms with its entire cooking. Grilling over coals, those cutlets from the Berryautane pig soon gave off a succulent aroma that perfumed the air. But I catch myself following in the Canadian footsteps, looking at me in ecstasy over freshly grilled pork. Soldier pork! Please grant me a pardon, as I have already granted one to Mr. Landon on the same grounds. In short, dinner was excellent. Two ring doves rounded off this extraordinary menu. Sago pasta, bread from the Atricarpus. Nope. Atricarpus. There you go. Mangoes, half a dozen pineapples, the fermented liquor from some certain coconuts heightened our glee. I suspected that my two fine companions weren't quite as clear-headed as one could wish. <clears throat> um, What if we don't return to the Nautilus this evening? Council said. What if we never return to it? Nedlin added. Just then a stone whizzed towards us, landed at our feet, and cut the short the harpooner's proposition. A stone? A bezoar is a stone taken from the uh, stomach of a goat. It save you from, from most, most poisons. Yep. That's, uh, that's what that was. Anyway, we're just gonna have to figure out where the stone came from in the next chapter. Hey, so I wanted to give you guys a bit of an update on the move situation. Because at the time of recording this, it has been almost a week of me living in my, my brand new apartment. And, um... It has gone pretty well, I'll say. It's been it's been very interesting as a as a change of pace. I went from having roommates to not having any roommates, and while things like having everything exactly where I want it, having only my stuff like around, uh, having the fridge stocked with food, and knowing that when I go to the fridge, the food's still gonna be there. Those sorts of things have been very nice. Um, but it's also uh, a little lonely at times. Um, but thankfully, I have things like recording and video games and the ability to video chat with, with people um, or call people uh, to, to maintain that kind of like uh, uh, contact with the outside world. It's different from when I first went to college where I, I went to college and I was lonely and... Um, you know, it was, it was a rough time because it's your first time away from home and all that stuff. And I threw myself into making YouTube videos. And so basically what happened was I, I, it's not like I didn't do things, but I definitely spent more time in my apartments, um, making videos than I probably should have. Uh, but it was, it was, it was my coping mechanism was I just created, you know, and when you create things for other people, uh, you have this constant stream of like someone to talk to almost if that makes sense um, kind of like what I'm doing right now where I'm you know alone but I'm talking to you guys so it's it weirdly balances out and the apartment itself is pretty good um, it, unless people are standing like right outside my door I haven't heard like anybody else like I got somebody that lives like across the hall from me and I haven't heard anything that would constitute as like noise or anything like that. I'm not sure if people live on either side of me yet, um, but the way like the balconies are built, you can't see into their balconies. Um, the doors are pretty far apart. Uh, like on my entire floor, I think there's like 13 apartments. Um, I haven't heard anybody above me and I haven't heard anyone below me. So I think the soundproofing in this place is pretty dang good. And it'll be even better once I get my blackout curtains um, because I'm a west facing apartment. Which means at night, uh, this place just heats up like a motherfucker. Um, it's been okay the last couple of days because it's been raining. So the sun hasn't been as aggressive. But today looks like it's going to be a pretty nice day. So it's going to be like windows open, fans on sort of day. Um, yeah, the apartment itself is pretty good. I finally have a bathtub that I could properly fucking fit in. Um, it's like when you're sitting in the tub, it goes up to like my armpits. Like it's, it's a deep tub. Um, and I'm a super big fan of that. Uh, the, all the, um, you know, appliances are brand new. This apartment was built, um, fit, at least this half of the apartment finished building in the end of July. Uh, the other building in the apartment is still under construction, but it looks like it's almost done. And even, even the construction noise I haven't heard, which I've been impressed by. There's a couple of weird things about the apartment. It's simultaneously too tall and too small for me. 
like bending over um, to access the fridge part of my refrigerator is like a 90 degree bend at the waist in order to actually access the top shelf. You really have to like fucking get in there. Uh, so that's awkward. And then all of my cabinets are massive. And like the top half of each cabinet, like the not like two and a half feet to three feet of space is like way above my head. I think like the tallest these cabinets get is like 12 feet in the air. It's it's pretty absurd. So I actually had to go out and buy a fucking step ladder so I could access like the top of my um the top of my cabinets, which is fine. Um, I don't mind having the step ladder like out and you know need it for for things like oh I'm going to make you know a pasta salad. I need my big mixing bowl and then I break out the step ladder to go get my big mixing bowl. Um, I don't mind those sorts of things. It is totally fine. It's been weird turning on the um the the memories of how to make food and what you need to do when you go shopping and i'm still like every now and then i'll be like oh i don't have like fucking crushed red pepper flakes put that on the list you know weird things that you don't really think about as like you know i used to think of them as just like oh i of course i've got this at home but now it's like i don't i don't have any of this shit i need to i need to buy it all i had to buy honey i had to buy baking soda i just all sorts of crap and i'm just like damn i really i didn't really didn't have anything when it came to to foodstuffs and my friends have been super generous uh, with, like, housewarming gifts. Uh, they got me, like, things to put my spatulas in, which I didn't have. They got me uh, frying pans, which I needed. They got me uh, these adorable, like, rubber ducky um, uh, bathtub sticky pad things. So there's, like, traction in there now. Just super, super useful stuff. Whiskey glasses. Thank God. Um, wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have whiskey glasses. Uh, but it's been it's been really good. Um, I got most of my furniture from IKEA and Costco. Um, Costco got me like the leather sofa and my media center for my television, which um, was a damn lucky find because we were moving in and unpacking, and I hired movers um, because Jesus Christ, if I didn't do that, it would have absolutely been a fucking nightmare. Um, we hired movers. And as I'm unpacking and stuff, I'm realizing, like, I've got a lot of shit to put on my bookshelf. Um, and to be fair, I filled that fucking bookshelf. Um, a couple of books went away. Uh, books that I know I'm never going to read. Uh, but more or less, that bookshelf is full. So if I, like, get more books, I'm going to have to get a second bookshelf. But I have no place to put that. So I might have to just store them elsewhere in the meantime. But... I'm, 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 I digress. It had no room for like DVDs or video games or CDs, um, all of which I still had. And so I was like, I need something to put my TV on that also holds all my video game consoles, all of my media, all my extraneous cords and stuff like that. And it looks good. And so we went to Costco and we're looking at their, um, their like, you know, side accent cabinets and stuff like that. And we find one. That is um perfect. It, it like it had glass doors so you could see into it. The color scheme matched everything else. Um, like my my living room's color scheme is basically just black or brown. Like the couch is uh, brown. My chase lounge is black. The TV is black. The bookcase is black and brown. And now the uh this entertainment console is black and brown. Um, but unfortunately, uh this this unit was the last one in the store, and so we couldn't get. Uh, like uh, we couldn't get it because they didn't have any available boxes. So he asked somebody and they're like, well, this item's been deactivated. Uh, so you can have the floor unit. And we were like, oh, fucking perfect because it was fully built and uh, had no signs of damage. And so we just loaded that in the back of the car and drove it on home. And um, we we scanned like the number on the tag and stuff like that. And we, and we got it and it was all totally fine. And um, I was curious about it later, so I looked up this exact console on Amazon. And it turns out that the the actual retail price for that unit was about $150 more than what I ended up paying for it. Um, which I consider to be an incredibly lucky break. So, uh, I'm very, very happy with that particular piece of furniture. It has earned its weight in, uh, in, in usage. And then, some, and then I got some plants, which really helped uh, make this place feel a bit more lively. Um, some spider plants and I brought over my succulents, which are, which are awesome. I still need to get my little, uh, my little, um, fucking, uh, whatchamajigger greenhouse for, I have a, like a grow your own bonsai tree kit that I very much want to get started. 
um, but I need a uh, I need a consistent temperatured controlled area and uh, Ikea sells this little tabletop Ikea greenhouse for like 20 bucks so I was just gonna grab that and stick it on um, one of my tables but yeah I think um, I think this apartment will do will do very well indeed I've recorded the last like several Brusinger chapters in this place and uh, I think it sounds pretty good if not as good as it sounded in the old place um, so that's pretty good and yeah that's pretty much what's going on I've also amused myself by uh, reading the the online reviews of this apartment complex because the reviews have not been positive um, and I've, I've been curious to see like what people had issues with and people were complaining like it's still under construction I'm like yeah it was built like two weeks ago how about you cut them some fucking slack or my favorite was somebody being like um, there's nothing to do there it feels really isolated and I'm like, that's why I chose it, because it's out of the way and there's nothing to do. It's so quiet here. Outside of like this apartment complex, the grocery store, and like the main strip of this air, like small section of town, we are surrounded by residential and really nice residential. Like a lot of fucking um, Microsoft employees live in this neck of the woods because we're we're not too far from one of their one of their main campuses. And so it's a lot of really big houses with long drives and, and like fenced off gated communities. And it's just, it's just kind of quiet and peaceful and it's, it's really nice. Um, and I, I very much enjoy the, the peace and quiet. It's, it's a stone's throw from the city, which is even better because I hate Seattle. So this is like the perfect spot for me and I'm, I'm really happy with it. But that's enough talking about the move. Um, also, I plan, I haven't done it yet because um, I, I, um, I want the curtains basically. Uh, so you guys can see like the true final product, but I'm going to do a, a quick, uh, apartment tour of what my place looks like. Uh, and it'll be a, a Patreon exclusive video. So if you guys want to see that head over to patreon.com forward slash going upcast and you will, uh, become a, become a $5 patron and get access to that, uh, the apartment video and the Nuzlocke videos and the live stream, which will happen here hopefully pretty soon. But for now, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you would know that one of my all-time favorite things in this world are the Muppets. I'm a big Muppet fan. I've got my own Muppet. It's called a Whatnot. I got it made at FAO Schwartz like when I was younger. I still have it. It's wonderful. And I'm fucking... Muppet Treasure Island is like my second all-time favorite movie. Muppet Christmas Carol is the best version of the Christmas Carol. It's phenomenal. And so when Disney Plus announced that there was a new Muppet show called Muppets Now, well, you know I got excited. And I'm here to tell you that it's all right. The 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 thing with with the show is that so trying to modernize the Muppets is is a tricky business at the best of times. Some of the things work, like the Swedish Chef's cooking show competition. I think that's pretty good. Um, Bunsen Honeydew and Beaker doing like almost like Mythbusters esque experiments is pretty fucking good. Um, Miss Piggy's like lifestyle fitness show kind of kind of hits and misses um so some of the some of the bits are pretty good and some of them are not fortunately none of the bits hang around for very long so you can kind of just either sit down and deal with it or you can just skip them um but i'm, I'm enjoying it it's it's maintaining some some classic muppet staples like the the presence of guest stars is still very much a thing in the show. They've had like Tay Diggs and RuPaul, uh, Danny Trejo, uh, Linda Cardellini, um, gosh, uh, and a few others that I, I'm, I'm forgetting. But there are definitely some bits that made me laugh pretty hard. I think the biggest sin against the show is is the is the current voice for Kermit the Frog. Everybody else sounds pretty fucking good like to what they used to sound like or what they originally sounded like everybody's pretty fucking close um kermit is kind of so far off that it's kind of tremendously upsetting and i cannot believe for an instant that this was the best kermit they found like if this dude can puppet that's totally fine just have him puppet but get a better fucking Kermit voice actor because this dude does not sound like Kermit and that is not Kermit. It's it's just, it's not even close. 
It's it's it, he sounds more like Seth Rogen than he does Kermit the Frog, and it's um it's upsetting to me. Like I think my Kermit the Frog impression is better, and my Kermit the Frog impression is trash. So it's it's not great. That's probably the biggest thing I have against the show. Um, everything else is fine. Like I think the 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 style that they're going for in terms of like structuring each episode is fine. It's not really um original or inspired, but it's it's okay. It's serviceable. I'll say that. It gets the job done. It acts as the framework that you need for the show in order for all these various little skits and stuff to to function. So, but it is the closest thing to like the Muppet Show that we've had in a while. This kind of like variety show where there's a bunch of different skits and stuff. Um, I just feel like it doesn't have the uh, the same soul in it, which is fair because it's new and modern and digital and all that stuff. Um, speaking of Disney Plus, actually, let me talk about this real quick. So Mulan, the live-action Mulan movie, is coming to Disney Plus at the price tag of thirty additional dollars. So for roughly what it would cost to buy Disney Plus for like half of a year, you need to pay that in order to stream Mulan. So they're they're doing this for a couple of reasons. One, Mulan was a very expensive film to to make, and they are trying to recuperate some of their losses. And two. It is they're 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 testing the waters. So they're like they're trying to see see how this goes. Thirty dollars, right? That's like ten dollars more than the price of a DVD, or it's about the equivalent of two movie tickets to go see Mulan. So one thing that I've noticed I've been doing when I've been thinking about this uh, has been to rationalize the the price tag, right? You know, you sit there and you go, oh, well, if I went to see this movie with my family, we'd spend twice this in order to, to see it in theaters once. So by paying $30 one time uh, to see this movie whenever you want on Disney+, Plus, as long as you have Disney+, Plus, you know, there's there's that argument to be made for it as well. Which is which is a fair argument. You know, you could even turn it into like a bit of a movie night where you get like a bunch of people over and everybody sits down and watches the new Mulan. You know, you get popcorn and snacks and stuff like that. Um, so that's interesting. It it also says to us that just putting a movie on Disney Plus is not a viable way to make money off of that movie. Which is something I wondered back when like Artemis Fowl was was released on Disney Plus or or stuff like that. Um, and it does seem that the the charging of money is the way to go. Indeed, when Trolls World Tour went out on digital only, it made more money than the first Trolls movie did in, like, the first month, I think. Like, it was incredible. And that's because it was just digital only, and people made those rational arguments where it's like, oh, sure, you know, it's $20, but if there's two of us here, or if we see it twice, you know, we just, that's it. It's, it's, it's perfect. So, it's interesting that they're doing it with Mulan. Um, which I believe is being more or less boycotted because of the Hong Kong protests by by various people. So I'm not sure what the what the like the the, the fucking controversy around Mulan is. Um, I'm sitting here going like they don't have Mushu, and if I wanted to see Mulan, I already have the best version of it available on Disney Plus. Now, if it was any other movie, like if it was Black Widow that they were they were releasing in this style, I'd probably consider it with with greater consideration um but i i had a, a fleeting interest to see mulan in theaters um and now that it's like 30 bucks on uh, on disney plus i'm not confident i'm going to spend that money in order to see this film especially if um like in like a year from now it'll just be on disney plus for free or will it always cost 30 dollars because if it always costs thirty dollars, then that's not super great. But if it follows the the stream of like any other movie, you know, and it just becomes free on Disney Plus, then I'll, I'm content to wait. They haven't said anything like that, and they wouldn't, you know, if they were like, uh, you know, for the first eight months it'll cost you thirty dollars, and then after that you can watch it for free. Because then very, very, very few people would pay the money. They would sit and wait, which is the the smarter thing to do, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, it, I, I thought that was that was interesting. So Muppets Now is, is decent. Um, my favorite bit was in the second episode in the Swedish Chef's cooking competition show when the chef is making his mole taco. That was adorable, and I loved that. I just smiled the whole time. That was that was fantastic. That's the best bit of the show so far. Um, 
But everything else was just kind of, meh, you know, it was, it was okay. It was okay. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing on the podcast. Alrighty, what is this chapter? You'd think I'd remember because I just fucking did. But no, not that one. It's stupid. Stupid. Uh, this is chapter 22? Yeah, chapter 22. The Lightning Bolts of Captain Nemo. Without standing up, we stared in the direction of the forest, my hand stopping halfway to my mouth, Nedland contemplating its assignment. Stones don't fall from the sky, Council said, or else they deserve to be called meteorites. Second well-polished stone removed a tangy ringed up light from Council's hand, giving it still greater relevance to his observations. We all three stood up, rifles to our shoulders, ready to attack. Apes, maybe? Nedland exclaimed. Nearly, Council replied. Savages. Oh, god damn it. Head for the skiff, I said, moving towards the sea. Indeed, it was essential to beat a retreat because some twenty natives armed with bows and slings appeared barely a hundred paces off on the outskirts of a thicket that masked the horizon to our right. The skiff was aground ten fathoms away from us, and savages were approaching without running, but they favored us with a show of the greatest hostility. It was raining stones and arrows. Nedland was unwilling to leave his provisions behind, and despite the impending danger, he clutched his pig on one side, his kangaroos on the other, and scampered off with respectable speed. In two minutes, we were on the strand. Loading provisions, weapons in the skiff, pushing into the sea, positioning its two oars were the work of an instant. We hadn't gone two cable lengths, but a hundred savages, howling and gesticulating, entered the water up to their waists. I looked to see if their appearance might draw some of the Nautilus's men onto the platform, but no, lying well out, that enormous machine still seemed completely deserted. Twenty minutes later, we boarded the ship. The hatches were open. After mooring the skiff, we re-entered the Nautilus's interior. I went below to the lounge, from which some cords were wafting. Captain Nemo was there, leaning over the organ, deep in musical trance. Captain, I said to him. He didn't hear me. Captain, I went on touching him with my hand. He trembled and turning around. Ah, it is you, Professor, he said to me. Well, did you have a happy hunt? Was your herb gathering success a success? Well, they gathered more than herbs. They murdered... Well, I don't know if they were endangered species at the time. But they probably didn't help. Help the cause of protecting the natural world, but... Whatever. I'm just going to take a swig of tea here. Ah, I'm starving. I gotta eat later. Anyway. Yes, Captain, I replied. But unfortunately, we brought back a horde of bipeds whose proximity worries me. What What sort of bipeds? Savages. Savages. Gadima replied in that ironic tone. You set foot on one of the shores of this globe, Professor, and you're surprised to find savages there. Where aren't there savages? And besides, they aren't any worse than men everywhere else. These people you'll call savages. But, Captain, speaking for myself, sir, I've encountered them everywhere. Well, then, I replied, if you don't want to welcome them aboard the Nautilus, you'd better take some precautions. Easy, Professor. There is no cause for alarm. But there are a large number of these natives. What was your count? At least a hundred. Professor Arnox, Captain Nemo replied, whose fingers took their places again on the organ keys. If every islander in Papua were to gather on that beach, the Nautilus would still have nothing to fear from their attacks. Captain's fingers ran over the instrument's keyboard, and noticed that he touched only its black keys, which gave its melodies a basic, a basically Scottish color. Soon he had forgotten my presence was lost in a reverie that I no longer tried to dispel. Climbed down to the platform, night had already fallen, because in this low latitude the sun sets quickly without any twilight. I could still see Guibero Island only dimly, but numerous fires had been kindled on its beach, attesting that the natives had no thoughts of leaving it. For several hours, I left myself. Um, I was left to myself, sometimes amusing on the islanders, but no longer fearing them because of the captain's unflappable confidence had won me over, and sometimes forgetting to marvel at the splendors of this tropical night. My memory took wing towards France in the wakes of these zodiacal stars, due to twinkle over it in a few hours. The moon shone in the midst of the constellations at their zenith. I then remembered that this loyal, good-natured satellite would return to the same place the day after tomorrow to raise the tide and tear the Nautilus from its coral bed. Near midnight, seeing that all was quiet over the darkened waves as well as under the waterside trees, I repaired to my cabin and fell into a peaceful sleep. The night passed without mishap. No doubt that the papoons had been frightened off by the mere sight of this monster aground in the bay because our hatch stayed open, offering easy access to the Nautilus's interior. At 6 o'clock in the morning, January the 8th, I climbed down on the platform. The morning shadows were lifting. The island was soon on view through the dissolving mists. First its beaches, and then its summits. The islanders were still there, in greater numbers than the day before, perhaps 500 or 600 of them. 
Taking advantage of the low tide, some of them have moved forward over the heads of coals within two cable lengths of the Nautilus. He easily distinguished them. They were obviously true Papuans, men of fine stock, athletic in build, foreheads high and broad, noses large but not flat, teeth white. Their woolly red-tinted hair was the sharp contrast to their bodies, which were black and glistening like those of Nubians. Beneath their pierced, distended lobes, there dangled strings of beads made from bone. Generally, the savages were naked. I noted some women among them dressed from hip to knee in grass skirts held up by belts made of vegetation. Some of the chieftains adorned their necks with crescents and necklaces made up of beads of red and white glass. Armed with bows, arrows, shields, nearly all of them carried such, um, carried from their soldier, shoulders sort of net, which held these polished stones, uh, their slings hurl, um, with the, such dexterity. One of these chieftains came fairly close to the Nautilus, examining it with care. He must have been a maddo of high rank because he paraded in a mat of banana leaves that had ragged edges and was accented with bright colors. Could easily have picked off this islander, he stood at such a close range. But I thought it best to wait for an actual show of hostility between Europeans and savages. It's acceptable for Europeans to shoot back, but not to attack first. Mm, not liking all these, all these statements. Anyway, during this whole time of low tide, the islanders lurked near the Nautilus, but they weren't boisterous. I often heard them repeat the word "asai," and from their gestures, I understood they were inviting me to go ashore. An invitation I felt obliged to decline. Soon, the skiff didn't leave shipside that day, uh, much to the displeasure of Mr. Land, who couldn't complete his provisions. Man. The adroit Canadian spent his time preparing the meat and flour products he had brought from Gueboro Island. As for the savages, they went back to shore near 11 o'clock in the morning when the heads of coal began to disappear under the waves of the rising tide. But I saw their numbers swell considerably on the beach. It was likely that they had come from neighboring islands or from the mainland of Papua proper. However, I didn't see one local dugout canoe. Having nothing better to do, I decided to dredge these beautiful clear waters, which exhibited a profusion of shells, zoophytes, and open sea plants. Besides, it was the last day the Nautilus would spend in these waterways if tomorrow it's, it still floated off the open sea as Captain Nemo promised. Shish. Shish, computer. Oh, my super glue's on the way. Oh, thank God. Such a necessity I, I have not been able to find in any fucking store, so I ordered it online. Um, a couple of pieces of mine did not survive the move, so I need to repair them with super glue. But it'll be fine. It'll take seconds. Anyway. So I summoned Council, who brought me a small, light dragnet similar to those used in oyster fishing. What about these savages? Council asked me. With all due respect, Master, they don't strike me as very wicked. They're cannibals even so, my boy. Person can be both a cannibal and a decent man, Council replied. Just as person can be both gluttonous and honorable. The one doesn't exclude the other. Fine, Council. And I agree that there are honorable cannibals who devour, decently devour the prisoners. However, I'm opposed to being devoured, even in all decency. So to keep on my guard, especially since the Nautilus's commander seems to be taking no precautions. Now let's get to work. For two hours, our fishing proceeded energetically, but without bringing up any rarities. Our dragnet was filled with Midas abalone, harp shells, obelisk snails, especially the finest hammer shells I had seen to that day. We also gathered in a few sea cucumbers, some pearl oysters, and a dozen small turtles that we saved from the sh for the ship's pantry. You fucking monsters. But just when I had least expected, I laid my hands on a wonder, a natural deformity I had have to call it, something very seldom encountered. Council had uh, just made to cast of a dragnet, and his gear had come back up loaded with a variety of fairly ordinary seashells, when suddenly he saw me plunge my arm swiftly into the net, pulled out a shelled animal, uh, and gave a conchological yell. In other words, the most piercing yell a human throat can produce. What? Conchological yell. Eh, sure, whatever. Eh, what happened, Master? Council asked, very startled. Did Master get bitten? No, my boy, but I'd gladly have sacrificed a finger for such a find. What find? This shell, I said, displaying the subject of my triumph. Um... But that's simply an olive shell from the tent olive species, genus Olivia. I'm tired of trying to pronounce all these fucking words. Yes, yes, Council, but instead of coiling from right to left, this olive shell rolls from left to right. It can't be. Council exclaimed, Yes, my boy, it's a left-handed shell. A left-handed shell! Council repeated, his heart pounding. Look at its spiral. No master can trust me on this, Council said, taking the valuable shell in his trembling hands. But never have felt such excitement. There was a good reason to be excited. In fact, as naturalists had ventured to observe, dextrality is a well-known law of nature. In their rotational and orbital movements, stars and satellites go from right to left. Man uses his right hand more often than his left, and consequently his various instruments, equipments, staircases, locks, watches, springs, etc. are designed to be used in a right-to-left manner. Now that nature has generally obeyed this law in coiling her shells, 
they are right-handed with only rare exceptions. And when by chance a shell spiral is left-handed, collectors will pay its weight in gold for it. So Council Isle and I were deep in contemplation of our treasure, and I solemnly promised myself to enrich the Paris Museum with it, when an ill-timed stone hurled by... Wait, hold on. Hurled by one of the islanders, whizzed over and shattered the valuable object in Council's hands. Amazing. I gave a yell of despair. Council pounced on his rifle and aimed at, the sa at a savage, swinging his sling just ten meters away from him. Tried to stop him, but the shot went off and shattered a bracelet of amulets dangling from the islander's arms. Council! I shouted. Council! Eh, what? Didn't Master see that this man had initiated the attack? Shell isn't worth a human life, I told him. Oh, the rascal! Council exclaimed. I'd rather he cracked my shoulder. Council was in dead earnest, but I didn't subscribe to his views. However, the situation had changed in only a short time, and we hadn't noticed it. Some Now some 20 dugout canoes were surrounding the Nautilus. Hollowed from tree trunks, these dugouts were long, narrow, and well-designed for speed, keeping their balance by means of two uh, bamboo poles that floated on the surface of the water. They were maneuvered by skillful half-naked paddlers, and I viewed their advance with definite alarm. It was obvious these pahoots had already entered. Oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. I'm sleepy. My neck still fucking hurts. It was obvious these Papuans had already entered into relations with the Europeans and knew their ships, but the long iron cylinder lying in the bay with no master funnels, what did they make of it? Nothing good, because at first they kept a respectful distance. However, seeing that it stayed motionless, they regained confidence little by little, tried to become more familiar with it. Now then, it was precisely this familiarity that we needed to prevent. Since our weapons made no sound when they went off, they would only have a moderate effect on these islanders who repeatedly respect nothing but noisy mechanisms. Without thunderclaps, lightning bolts would be much less frightening, Although the danger lies in the flash, not the noise. Uh, just then, the dugout canoes drew nearer to the Nautilus and a cloud of arrows burst over us. Fire and brimstone, it's hailing, Council said. And poisoned hail, perhaps. I forgot to alert Captain Nemo, I said, re-entering the hatch. I went below to the lounge. I found no one there. I ventured to knock at the door opening into the captain's stateroom. The word, Ensail, answered me. I did so and found Captain Nemo busy with calculations in which there was no shortage of X and other algebraic signs. Am I disturbing you? said I politeness. Correct, Professor Arnox. Captain answered me, but I imagine you have pre pressing reasons for looking me up. Very pressing. Native dugout canoes are surrounding us, and in a few minutes we're sure to be assaulted by several hundred savages. Ah, Captain Nero put into me. They come in their dugouts. Yes, sir. Well, sir, closing the hatches should do the trick. Precisely. And that's what I came to tell you. Nothing easier, Captain Nero said. He pressed an electric button transmitting in order to the, cap to the crew's quarters. They are, sir, all under control, he told me after a few moments. The skiff is in place and the hatches are closed. Don't imagine you're worried about these gentlemen will starve in the walls that shells or your frigate couldn't breach. No, Captain, but one danger still, still remains. What's that, sir? Tomorrow, about this time, we need to reopen the hatches to renew the Nautilus's air. No arguments, sir, since our crafts breathe in a manner favored by whales. But if these papoons are occupying the platform at the time, I don't see how you can prevent them from entering. Then, sir, you'll assume they'll board the ship. I'm certain of it. Well, sir, let them come aboard. I see no reason to prevent them. Deep down, they're just poor devils, these papoons. And I don't want my visit to Webboe Island to cost the life of a single one of these unfortunate people. On this note, I was about to withdraw, but Captain Nemo detained me and invited me to take a seat next to him. He questioned me with interest of our excursions ashore and on our hunting, but he seemed not, not to understand the Canadian's passion for craving for red meat. Then our conversation skimmed various objects, and without being more forthcoming, Captain Nemo proved more affable. Among other things... Came to talk about the Nautilus's circumstances, aground in the same strait where Captain Dumont Urville had nearly miscarried. Then, pertinent to this, He was one of your great seamen, the captain told me. One of your shrewdest navigators, that Urville. He was the Frenchman's captain cook. A man wise but unlucky. Braving the ass banks of the South Pole, the coral of Oceania, the cannibals of the Pacific. Only to perish wretchedly in a train wreck. If that energetic man was able to think about his life in its last seconds, imagine what his final thoughts must have been. As he spoke, Captain Nemo seemed deeply moved, an emotion I felt uh, was to his credit. Then, chart in hand, we returned to the deeds of the French navigator, his voyages to circumnavigate the globe, his double attempt at the South Pole, which led to his discovery of the Adelaide Coast and the Louise-Philippe Peninsula, finally his hydrographic surveys of the chief islands of Oceania. What your devil did on the surface of the sea, Captain Nemo told me, I have done in the ocean's interior, but more easily, more completely than he. Constantly tossed about by hurricanes, the zealous and the new astrolabe could not compare with the Nautilus, a quiet workroom truly a rest in the midst of the waters. Even so, Captain, I said, there's one major similarity between Demont Urville's sleeps of war and Nautilus. What's that, sir? Like them, the Nautilus is our ground. The Nautilus is not our ground, sir. 
Captain Nemo replied icily. The Nautilus was built to rest on the ocean floor. Now no need to undertake the arduous labors. The maneuvers de Urville had to attempt in order to float off his sloops of war. The zealous and the new astrolabe well nigh perished, but my Nautilus is in no danger. Tomorrow, on the day stated at the hour state, the tide will peacefully lift it off, and it will resume navigating through the seas. Captain, I said, I don't doubt tomorrow, Captain Nemo had standing up, tomorrow at 2.40 in the afternoon, the Nautilus will float off and exit the tourist today undamaged. Pronouncing these words in an extremely sharp tone, Captain Nemo gave me a curt bow, this was my dismissal, and I re-entered my stateroom. There I found Cancel, who wanted to know the upshot of my interview with the captain. My boy, I said, when I expressed the belief of these Papuan natives was the third to his not, the captain answered me with great irony. So I have just one thing to say to you. Have faith in him and sleep in peace. Master, there's no need for my services. No, my friend. What's Nedland up to? Begging Master's indulgence, uh, uh, Cancel replied, but our friend Ned is concocting a kangaroo pie that will be the eighth wonder. I was left to myself. I went to bed, but slept pretty poorly. I kept hearing noises from the savages who were stamping on the platform and letting out deafening yells. The night passed in this way without the crew ever emerging from their usual inertia. They were no more disturbed by the presence of these man-eaters than soldiers in an armed fortress that are troubled by ants running over armored plate. I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning. The hatches weren't open, so the air inside hadn't been renewed, but the air tanks uh, were kept full for any eventuality and would function appropriately to shoot a few cubic meters of oxygen into the Nautilus's thin atmosphere. I worked in my stateroom until noon without seeing Captain Nemo even for an instant. Nobody on board seemed to be making any preparations for departure. I still waited for a while, then I made my way to the main lounge. Its timepiece marked 2.30. In 10 minutes, the tide would reach its maximum elevation. If Captain Nemo hadn't made a rash promise, the Nautilus would immediately break free. If not, many months might pass before it could leave its coral bed. But some preliminary vibrations could soon be felt over the bolt's hull. I heard its plating grind against the limestone roughness up from the coral base. At 2.35, Captain Nemo appeared in the lounge. We're about to depart, he said. Ah, I put in. I've given orders to open the hatches. What about the papoons? What about them? Captain Nemo replied with light shrugs of his shoulders. When they come inside the Nautilus, how will they manage that? By jumping down the hatches you're about to open. Professor Arnox. Captain Nemo replied to me. The Nautilus's hatches aren't to be entered in the fashion, even when they are open. I gave to the captain. You don't understand, he said to me. Not in the least. Well, come along and you'll see. I headed to the central companionway. They were very puzzled. Ned Lennon Council watched the crewmen opening the hatches, and while a frightful clamor and furious shouts resounded outside, the hatches' lids fell back onto the outer plating. Twenty horrible faces appeared. But when the first islander laid hands on the companionway railing, he was flung backward by some invisible power. Lord knows what. He ran off howling in terror and wildly prancing around. Ten of his companions followed him. All ten met the same fate. Council was in ecstasy. Carried away by his violent instincts, Ned Lynn leapt up the companionway. But as soon as his hand seized the railing, he was thrown backward in his turn. Damnation! He exclaimed. I was struck by a bolt of lightning. These words explained everything to me. It wasn't just a railing that led to the platform. It was a metal cable fully charged with the ship's electricity. Anyone who touched it got a fearsome shock. And such a shock that would have been fatal if Captain Nemo had thrown its full curtain of his equipment into this conducting cable. It could honestly be said that he had stretched between himself and his assailants. A network of electricity no one could clear with impunity. Meanwhile, crazed with terror, the unhinged Papuans beat a retreat. As for us, half laughing, we massaged the covered poor Nedland, who was swearing like one possessed. But just then, lifted by the tide's final undulations, the Nautilus left its coral bed at exactly that 40th minute pinpointed by the captain. Its propelled churned, propeller churned to the waves with lazy, lazy majesty. Gathering speed little by little, the ship navigated on the surface of the ocean, safe and sound. And it left behind the dangerous narrows of the Torres Strait. You know, when this chapter was called The Lightning Bolts of Captain Nemo, I was fully expecting him to just go on, like, a horrible tirade. Just, like, rage at, um, you know, fucking Arnox and friends. But like, I guess I was wrong. I guess I was wrong. Finally this week, I wanted to talk about something that I think is fucking awesome that I cannot wait for. Previously, in years gone by, I have gone to PAX Prime in Seattle basically every year in one form or another um, just to experience this amazing uh, convention. It's it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, that being said, I haven't been to many um, other conventions but I'm really, really excited about PAX each year. Now, of course, COVID happened, and we're all just like, okay, well, I guess that means there's no conventions. Wrong, motherfuckers. PAX Online. 
so I've been I've been doing some reading up on this. Essentially, what PAX Online is going to be is it is a 24-hour-a-day, nine-day digital convention. They're going to have panels populating every time slot of that convention, supposedly. I don't know how they're going to be able to generate that much content, but they're supposedly going to have panels. You're going to be able to download demos at home and play them there during this time, which is astounding to me that we will be able to download demos, play these demos. Like, people are going to record these demos. People are going to make videos off of these demos. And so it's it's really, really interesting what, what's going on here. Um, I'm personally incredibly excited for it. We finally got dates for it from the 12th to the 20th of September is is PAX um is PAX online. So if you if you work, you know, like Monday to Friday, that gives you four days of of weekends to be able to explore this content. Uh just to just to dive into it. They'll have a steady stream of content, events, discussions, gameplay. It's oh my god. It's gonna be pretty incredible. And here's the best bit. Here is the best bit. It's free. If you have access to the internet, you can you can just you can experience this for free, which is pretty absurd to me. There's still like um, some merch available on uh, online um, at the official pack store. One of my favorite things about it was always buying stuff from like the vendors and stuff like that. So I'm hoping that they're gonna have like a list of um, you know we're doing it online. Here's all of our like partner vendors, and maybe we'll have like online digital deals. Or something like that. I think that'd be incredible, just so I can like explore and get that that get that feel. But I'm I'm really really excited to to take a look at some of these demos. I don't even know like what games are going to be at PAX Online. You know, I, I know we spoke about games with like Sony released its stuff and then Xbox released its stuff. So maybe some of those games might make a showing. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how the demos work, especially for like non-PC games. Like what if I wanted to demo like a fucking, you know, new Sony game or a new Xbox game? Are they gonna be PC demos or are they just gonna show us gameplay? Um, I guess we'll find out. I guess we will find out, but I thought that was really cool and I wanted to share it so you guys could get ready for PAX Online, especially because it's free and you can experience it from anywhere in the world. So fucking let's go, let's do it. Oh man, I'm really excited. I think that'll do it this week for the Going Up cast. Thank you all very much for listening. Um, we talked about PAX Online. We talked about the new Muppet Show. We read some chapters. I talked about moving. I talked about dreams. PlayStation. Oh, my God. Just just a, just a hell of a week. I am now settled. I am ready to start cranking out this content with greater alacrity. With Just to make sure that everybody gets what they're looking for in the podcast and the audiobooks. It's going to be It's going to be pretty fantastic. Um, and I want to thank you all very much for listening. I know these times the world is still exploded. Uh, we're seeing some, some positive lights on the horizon of, of potential cures for exploded world. So that'll be really nice and exciting one day. Uh, but in the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands, do all that fun stuff, wear that fucking mask. And, uh, and I'll see you all in the next one. Have a good one, everyone.